Chapters 9 and 10 of Omu. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Omu, a narrative of adventures in the South Seas, by Herman Melville. Chapter 9. We steer to the westward, state of affairs. The night we left Hanamanu was bright and starry, and so warm, that when the watches were relieved, most of the men, instead of going below, flung themselves around the foremast. Towards morning, finding the heat of the forecastle unpleasant, I ascended to the deck, where everything was noiseless. The trades were blowing with a mild, steady strain upon the canvas, and the ship heading right out into the immense blank of the western Pacific. The watch were asleep. With one foot resting on the rudder, even the man at the helm nodded, and the mate himself, with arms folded, was leaning against the capstan. On such a night, and all alone, reverie was inevitable. I leaned over the side, and could not help thinking of the strange objects we might be sailing over. But my meditations were soon interrupted by a grey, spectral shadow cast over the heaving billows. It was the dawn, soon followed by the first rays of the morning. They flashed into view at one end of the arched night, like, to compare great things with small, the gleamings of Guy Fawkes's lantern in the vaults of the Parliament House. Before long, what seemed a live ember rested for a moment on the rim of the ocean, and at last the blood-red sun stood full and round in the level east, and the long sea-day began. Breakfast over, the first thing attended to was the formal baptism of Waimantu, who, after thinking over his affairs during the night, looked dismal enough. There were various opinions as to a suitable appellation. Some maintained that we ought to call him Sunday, that being the day we caught him, others, 1842, the then year of our Lord, while Dr. Longghost remarked that he ought, by all means, to retain his original name, Waimantu he, meaning, as he maintained, in the figurative language of the island, something analogous to one who had got himself into a scrape. The mate put an end to the discussion by sousing the poor fellow with a bucket of salt water and bestowing upon him the nautical appellation of Luff. Though a certain mirthfulness succeeded his first pangs at leaving home, Waimantu, we will call him thus, gradually relapsed into his former mood and became very melancholy. Often I noticed him crouching apart in the forecastle, his strange eyes gleaming restlessly and watching the slightest movement of the men. Many a time he must have been thinking of his bamboo hut when they were talking of Sydney and its dance-houses. We were now fairly at sea, though to what particular cruising ground we were going no one knew, and, to all appearances, few cared. The men, after a fashion of their own, began to settle down into the routine of sea-life, as if everything was going on prosperously. Blown along over a smooth sea, there was nothing to do but steer the ship and relieve the lookouts at the mastheads. As for the sick, they had two or three more added to their number, the air of the island having disagreed with the constitutions of several of the runaways. To crown all, the captain again relapsed and became quite ill. The men fit for duty were divided into two small watches, headed respectively by the mate and the Maori the latter, by virtue of his being a harpooner, succeeding to the place of the second mate who had absconded. In this state of things, whaling was out of the question, but in the face of everything, 
Jermin maintained that the invalids would soon be well. However that might be, with the same pale blue sky overhead, we kept running steadily to the westward. Forever advancing, we seemed always in the same place, and every day was the former lived over again. We saw no ships, expected to see none. No sign of life was perceptible but the porpoises and other fish sporting under the bows like pups ashore. But, at intervals, the grey albatross, peculiar to these seas, came flapping his immense wings over us, and then skimmed away silently as if from a plague-ship, or flights of the tropic bird, known among seamen as the bosun, wheeled round and round us, whistling shrilly as they flew. The uncertainty hanging over our destination at this time, and the fact that we were abroad upon waters comparatively little traversed, lent an interest to this portion of the cruise which I shall never forget. From obvious prudential considerations, the Pacific has been principally sailed over in known tracks, and this is the reason why new islands are still occasionally discovered by exploring ships and adventurous whalers, notwithstanding the great numbers of vessels of all kinds of late navigating this vast ocean. Indeed, considerable portions still remain wholly unexplored, and there is no doubt as to the actual existence of certain shoals and reefs and small clusters of islands vaguely laid down in the charts. The mere circumstance, therefore, of a ship like ours penetrating into these regions was sufficient to cause any reflecting mind to feel at least a little uneasy. For my own part, the many stories I had heard of ships striking at midnight upon unknown rocks, with all sails set, and a slumbering crew, often recurred to me, especially as from the absence of discipline, and our being so short-handed, the watches at night were careless in the extreme. But no thoughts like these were entertained by my reckless shipmates, and along we went, the sun every evening setting straight ahead of our jib-boom. For what reason the mate was so reserved with regard to our precise destination was never made known. The stories he told us I for one did not believe, deeming them all a mere device to lull the crew. He said we were bound to a fine cruising ground, scarcely known to other whalemen, which he had himself discovered when commanding a small brig upon a former voyage. Here the sea was alive with large whales, so tame, that all you had to do was to go up and kill them. They were too frightened to resist. A little to leeward of this, was a small cluster of islands, where we were going to refit, abounding with delicious fruits, and peopled by a race almost wholly unsophisticated by intercourse with strangers. In order, perhaps, to guard against the possibility of anyone finding out the precise latitude and longitude of the spot we were going to, German never revealed to us the ship's place at noon, though such is the custom aboard of most vessels. Meanwhile, he was very assiduous in his attention to the invalids. Dr. Longost having given up the keys of the medicine chest, they were handed over to him, and as physician, he discharged his duties to the satisfaction of all. Pills and powders, in most cases, were thrown to the fish, and in place thereof, the contents of a mysterious little quarter cask were produced, diluted with water from the butt. His drafts were mixed on the capstan in coconut shells marked with the patient's names. Like shore doctors, he did not eschew his own medicines, for his professional calls in the forecastle 
were sometimes made when he was comfortably tipsy. Nor did he omit keeping his invalids in good humor, spinning his yarns to them by the hour whenever he went to see them. Owing to my lameness, from which I soon began to recover, I did no active duty except standing an occasional trick at the helm. It was in the forecastle chiefly that I spent my time in company with the long doctor, who was at great pains to make himself agreeable. His books, though sadly torn and battered, were an invaluable resource. I read them through again and again, including a learned treatise on the yellow fever. In addition to these, he had an old file of Sydney papers, and I soon became intimately acquainted with the localities of all the advertising tradesmen there. In particular, the rhetorical flourishes of Stubbs, the real estate auctioneer, diverted me exceedingly, and I set him down as no other than a pupil of Robbins the Londoner. Aside from the pleasure of his society, my intimacy with Longhost was of great service to me in other respects. His disgrace in the cabin only confirmed the goodwill of the democracy in the forecastle, and they not only treated him in the most friendly manner, but looked up to him with the utmost deference, besides laughing heartily at all his jokes. As his chosen associate, this feeling for him extended to me, and gradually we came to be regarded in the light of distinguished guests. At mealtimes we were always first served, and otherwise were treated with much respect. Among other devices to kill time, during the frequent calms, Longhost hit upon the game of chess. With a jackknife, we carved the pieces quite tastefully out of bits of wood, and our board was the middle of a chess lid, chalked into squares, which, in playing, we straddled at either end. Having no other suitable way of distinguishing the sets, I marked mine by tying round them little scarves of black silk, torn from an old neck-handkerchief. Putting them in mourning this way, the doctor said, was quite appropriate, seeing that they had reason to feel sad three games out of four. Of chess the men never could make head nor tail. Indeed, their wonder rose to such a pitch that they at last regarded the mysterious movements of the game with something more than perplexity, and after puzzling over them through several long engagements, they came to the conclusion that we must be a couple of necromancers. CHAPTER Ten, A SEA PARLOR DESCRIBED WITH SOME OF ITS TENANTS I may as well give some idea of the place in which the doctor and I lived together so sociably. Most persons know that a ship's forecastle embraces the forward part of the deck about the bowsprit. The same term, however, is generally bestowed upon the sailors' sleeping quarters, which occupy a place immediately beneath and are partitioned off by a bulkhead. Planted right in the bows, or, as sailors say, in the very eyes of the ship, this delightful apartment is of a triangular shape, and is generally fitted with two tiers of rude bunks. Those of the Julia were in a most deplorable condition, mere wrecks, some having been torn down altogether to patch up others, and on one side there were but two standing. But with most of the men it made little difference whether they had a bunk or not, since, having no bedding, they had nothing to put in it but themselves. Upon the boards of my own crib I spread all the old canvas and old clothes I could pick up. For a pillow I wrapped an old jacket round a log. This helped a little the wear and tear of one's bones when the ship rolled. Rude hammocks made out of old sails 
were in many cases used as substitutes for the demolished bunks, but the space they swung in was so confined that they were far from being agreeable. The general aspect of the forecastle was dungeon-like and dingy in the extreme. In the first place, it was not five feet from deck to deck, and even this space was encroached upon by two outlandish cross-timbers bracing the vessel, and by the sailor's chests over which you must needs crawl in getting about. At meal-times, and especially when we indulged in after-dinner chat, we sat about the chests like a parcel of tailors. In the middle of it all were two square wooden columns, denominated in marine architecture bowsprit bits. They were about a foot apart, and between them, by a rusty chain, swung the forecastle lamp, burning day and night, and forever casting two long black shadows. Lower down, between the bits, was a locker, or sailor's pantry, kept in abominable disorder, and sometimes requiring a vigorous cleaning and fumigation. All over, the ship was in a most dilapidated condition, but in the forecastle it looked like the hollow of an old tree going to decay. In every direction the wood was damp and discolored, and here and there soft and porous. Moreover, it was hacked and hewed without mercy, the cook frequently helping himself to splinters for kindling wood from the bits and beams. Overhead, every car line was sooty, and here and there deep holes were burned in them, a freak of some drunken sailors on a voyage long previous. From above you entered by a plank with two cleats, slanting down from the scuttle, which was a mere hole in the deck. There being no slide to draw over in case of emergency, the tarpaulin temporarily placed there was little protection from the spray heaved over the bows, so that in anything of a breeze the place was miserably wet. In a squall, the water fairly poured down in sheets like a cascade, swashing about, and afterwards spurting up between the chests like the jets of a fountain. Such were our accommodations aboard of the Julia, but bad as they were, we had not the undisputed possession of them. Myriads of cockroaches and regiments of rats disputed the place with us. A greater calamity than this can scarcely befall a vessel in the South Seas. So warm is the climate that it is almost impossible to get rid of them. You may seal up every hatchway and fumigate the hull till the smoke forces itself out at the seams, and enough will survive to repeople the ship in an incredibly short period. In some vessels, the crews of which after a hard fight have given themselves up, as it were, for lost, the vermin seem to take actual possession, the sailors being mere tenants by sufferance. With sperm whalemen, hanging about the line, as many of them do for a couple of years on a stretch, it is infinitely worse than with other vessels. As for the Julia, these creatures never had such free and easy times as they did in her crazy old hull. Every chink and cranny swarmed with them. They did not live among you, but you among them. So true was this, that the business of eating and drinking was better done in the dark than in the light of day. Concerning the cockroaches, there was an extraordinary phenomenon for which none of us could ever account. Every night they had a jubilee. The first symptom was an unusual clustering and humming among the swarms lining the beams overhead, and the inside of the sleeping places. This was succeeded by a prodigious coming and going on the part of those living out of sight. Presently they all came forth, 
the larger sort racing over the chests and planks, winged monsters darting to and fro in the air, and the small fry buzzing in heaps almost in a state of fusion. On the first alarm, all who were able darted on deck, while some of the sick who were too feeble lay perfectly quiet, the distracted vermin running over them at pleasure. The performance lasted some ten minutes, during which no hive ever hummed louder. Often it was lamented by us that the time of the visitation could never be predicted. It was liable to come upon us at any hour of the night, and what a relief it was when it happened to fall in the early part of the evening. Nor must I forget the rats. They did not forget me. Tame as Trenck's mouse, they stood in their holes peering at you like old grandfathers in a doorway. Often they darted in upon us at mealtimes and nibbled our food. The first time they approached Waimantu, he was actually frightened, but becoming accustomed to it, he soon got along with them much better than the rest. With curious dexterity, he seized the animals by their legs and flung them up the scuttle to find a watery grave. But I have a story of my own to tell about these rats. One day the cabin steward made me a present of some molasses, which I was so choice of, that I kept it hid away in a tin can in the farthest corner of my bunk. Faring as we did, this molasses dropped upon a biscuit was a positive luxury, which I shared with none but the doctor, and then only in private. And sweet as the treacle was, how could bread thus prepared and eaten in secret be otherwise than pleasant? One night our precious can ran low, and in canting it over in the dark, something besides the molasses slipped out. How long it had been there, kind providence never revealed, nor were we over-anxious to know, for we hushed up the bare thought as quickly as possible. The creature certainly died a luscious death, quite equal to clearances in the butt of Malmsey. End of chapters 9 and 10 Recording by Tricia G.